You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Well, verse 1 of chapter 9, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we were introduced to this man, Saul of Tarsus, a couple weeks ago in chapter 7. Most of us know him by his new name, his Christian name, uh, Paul the Apostle. And uh, it's just neat that the account is given to us in Acts of his before Christ days. Uh, He has an incredible testimony uh, to share, but it's one that's kind of haunted him his whole life. Because we see back in chapter 7, verse 58, after Stephen had preached a message of salvation and repentance to the Sanhedrin, they stopped their ears and didn't want to hear it anymore. And they yelled at him and ran at him with one accord, throwing him out of the city. And they began to stone him. But before they stoned him, they laid their their garments down at the feet of of a young man named Saul. Uh, That meant that he he was the one that had commanded it to happen. And so they were uh, placing their garments or saying, we're under your authority. We also see in verse 1 of chapter 8 that Saul consented to Stephen's death or he gave the green light uh, for Stephen to be martyred. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So we see this man, you know, a man who hated Christians, a man who, you know, had had followed Judaism and believed in monotheism, that there was only one God, yet had a lack of understanding of the Trinity, had a lack of understanding that that Jesus was God. And so when he heard them say he was God, it, it enraged him. So that he would wreak havoc on the church. And that speaks of an animal tearing his prey to pieces. And that's exactly what Saul did to the church. Dragging off both men and women. He didn't care. Get them to prison. Get them before the Sanhedrin so that they could be charged and condemned and meet the same fate that Stephen had. That of stoning. That of putting them uh, to death. And so he breathed threats and murder. Every breath that he took was one full of antagonism and hatred towards this, this group of people that, was, that couldn't shut their mouths about Jesus. I just want you to shut your mouth. Just quit you know, stopping his ears. Just quit talking about him. Just, we got to put them to death. You know, the, the gospel of John, Jesus tells us in that gospel that, you know, the, the day is going to come when they're going to throw you out of the synagogues and they're going to throw you into prison and they're going to think that they're doing God a service. That's exactly where Saul was at. He thought he was doing God a service. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, in in, in listing off some of his qualifications of being a good guy in the world standards, he says, concerning zeal, I was so zealous, I was persecuting the church. Galatians chapter 1 tells us that he persecuted the church above and beyond measure. I'm I'm not positive how you measure persecution, but you couldn't with Saul as he went out and wreaked havoc and breathed threats and murders. He wanted to annihilate uh, Christians so much so that he went to the high priest, got these documents, these letters that gave the go ahead uh, for just every synagogue up in the Damascus region uh, to to turn over these Christians, point them out. We're going to take them back in chains uh, to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. 
And so apparently he had heard about, you know, the, the Christian movement finding their way up 140 miles away northeast of Jerusalem to this city called Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, uh, notice that that's the, the, the name of the church back in the day. And I like that. You know, I like it was called the way. No doubt, you know, stemming from, you know, Jesus's words in John chapter 14, verse six, that I am the way. The truth, the life. If anyone you know, wants to come to the Father, it's through me. Or from what Peter preached so openly in the, in the temple area, that you know, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that you know, there's no other name given among men under heaven by which man must be saved than the name of Jesus. There's one way. And man, that was just a message of the early church. Sadly, that's not a message of much of the church anymore. You know, there's a thread or there's more of a tidal wave of ecumenicalism within the church today. Any faith, just let's get together and let's just worship together. And somehow it all ends up ending up with the same God. That is not biblical. There is one faith. There is one way. And his name is Jesus. You're narrow-minded, Rory. Hey, you know what? Jesus is narrow-minded. You know, narrow is the path. That leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go by it. Man, I'm proud to be part of a heritage uh, in Jesus that's known as the way. We won't be known as Christians until later on in Acts chapter uh, 11, and I look forward to getting there in Antioch. But, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> drag off any of the way, whether they're men or women, doesn't matter. I want to bring them bound to Jerusalem. And just real quick, we can flip over to uh, Acts chapter 26. And as you're there, you might just slip a little piece of paper in there because we'll come back in just a little bit as well. Here, Paul gives his testimony before Herod and, and uh, Festus. And it says here in um, Acts chapter 26, Verse 9 says, Indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Man, anything I can do that, to resist or stop or quench that movement of, of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, man, I would do it. This I also did in Jerusalem, and, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. I've received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Sometimes we think that Stephen was the only one that Saul was responsible uh, for murdering. But here we get the, the, you know, the intent is shown to us that he was part of martyring many Christians, murdering many Christians. That was part of his life before Christ got a hold of him was just vehemently, zealously persecuting the church. You know, later on in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about, I was, a I was a persecutor, I was a blasphemer, I was an insolent, violent man. That, that's his testimony. Breathing threats and murders against the church, man and woman, it didn't matter. And, uh, you know, I want to bring him back to Jerusalem bound, and so... As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus. So a 140-mile journey just to uh, bring Christians back uh, for prison. 
Now, this guy was passionate about his cause to travel 140 miles in the day of, of you know, horse or you know, some kind of a chariot or a wagon. And uh, man, it just begs the question, how passionate are you for Jesus? I mean, we see how passionate Saul was against Jesus. He would go to great lengths to, to quench that movement of the way. We see the Mormons going door to door and the Jehovah's Witnesses going door to door, passionate for their movement. We see the, you know, the people on their recycling kicks, you know, and they go and do their thing or, or, you know, people doing this and fundraising and, and passionate. Some of those things, good things, passionate things. But how passionate are we? What lengths do we go to, to get the name of Jesus out there? I mean, is it too much for God to even ask for you to open up your mouth about him at work? Here was a guy that was so passionate against Jesus. I'm going to travel 140 miles just to arrest people and bring them back. That was quite the task. And so he goes on this journey and he's almost there. He's almost 140 miles there. Damascus was known to, uh, to be an oasis in the middle of the desert, palm trees and lush green grass in the midst of the desert. And so perhaps Saul was starting to see some of the trees as he's on his way but he was near to Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Just on his way, a light shows. We know that it wasn't the sun. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, he says it was brighter than the noonday sun. It was noon. That's what time it was when this happened, midday. And this bright light shines down from heaven, not the sun, but definitely we're going to see here. It's the son of God shining down upon him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, most believe that, you know, as he was a prominent man on a prominent mission, that he was on some sort of, sort of beast, some, perhaps a horse, and he fell to the ground. No doubt that didn't feel good. I've fallen off a few horses, and uh, it's not the greatest feeling in the world, depending on how you land. But he fell down, and the language speaks of a captor falling down on his face, uh, before those who have imprisoned him. And, and so, you know, he now on his way to arrest people has been arrested by the Lord. He's been arrested by Jesus and he falls on his face in, in submission, immediately knowing whoever this is, whatever this is, uh, it's too much for me. He's too much for me. And he, he falls down to the ground. And, and this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, God likes to ask questions and Jesus in the gospels, we constantly see him answering questions with questions. And it's not because God doesn't know the answer. Adam, where are you? As he walked through the garden in the cool of the day. Hey, Eve, we really are hiding good. He doesn't know where we are. You know, no, where are you? How, Adam, how did you go from walking with me in the cool of the day and fellowshipping with me to now you're hiding and you're ashamed of yourself because you're naked. Where are you? What happened? Think about it. That's the reason God asks questions. Where am I? Why am I here? What has happened to me to get me to this place? Elijah, why are you down here, you know, at the mountain of God when you've got a ministry up in Samaria to King Ahab? Oh, I'm depressed, God. I'm the only one left in, in all of Israel that you know, hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. No, really, Elijah, why are you here? You really think that I'm not there with you? You really are so discouraged and depressed like I'm not 
showing myself strong? Weren't you just at Mount Carmel when the fire came down from heaven? Think about it. Why are you here? Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know the scriptures. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You have practically the whole Old Testament memorized. Think about it. I am evident in the scriptures. It's evident in the scriptures that I am the Messiah, the son of God. Why are you persecuting me? You know, that's a really good question, Lord. That's a really good question. Oh, no. What am I doing? And notice that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting those poor people down there in Jerusalem? Why are you on your way to Damascus? No, you're persecuting me. And in Matthew chapter 25, during the sheeps and the goats judgment, Jesus began separating the sheep and the goats because of what they did to Jesus's brethren during the great tribulation period. And he says, you know what? You didn't feed them. You didn't clothe them. You didn't take them in. You didn't show them the love of Jesus. And when you didn't do that to them, you didn't do it to me. Or when you did do it to them, you did it to me. You see, whenever the church is persecuted or a a son of God is neglected or mistreated, you're mistreating Jesus. When you mess with, uh, you know, as we saying, Abba, Father, when you mess with his children, you're messing with the Father. When you mess with the church, you're messing with the bride of Christ. He's the groom. If anyone messes with my wife, they're messing with me. I don't know that that really matters. I'd say that you're going to have to deal with me. And man, I'm thinking it's going to be pretty fiery, <laughs> you know. But you touch the bride of Christ. You're touching Jesus. And we see that when, when uh, Stephen was thrown out of the city and they started stoning him. And he's being pelted in the face with giant stones. And he's going down. His, his final breaths are there. And when Stephen sees the throne of God, he doesn't see Jesus kicking back, not even knowing what's happening down on earth. But he sees Jesus has stood up from his throne. And he's careful as he looks down and he knows what's happening to Stephen. He's aware of the suffering of the saints. That's why Hebrews says so well that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He suffered, which is an incredible thing. He's able to aid those who are suffering. When you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And I I think that this wasn't said so much in anger. In fact, I I don't really see that when I read it, but more of a compassionate plea for Saul to be reasonable. Why why are you persecuting me? And, you know, in all of his glory and the light shining down like the noonday sun, stronger than the noonday sun, man, just Saul's hard heart was melted like wax there before the Lord. And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And I think he said it a little bit fearful, maybe knowing the answer. <laughs> please say anybody but Jesus. Please say anybody but Jesus. Please say anybody. Please. Oh, I, don't, I hope it's not Jesus because I got a whole bunch of chains right here. I'm going to go capture Christians. Please, who are you, Lord? I am, don't say it. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goad, Saul. Most of you know, you've probably heard this taught before, that the goad was a sharp rod, perhaps a metal uh, wood rod with a metal piece of spike on the end. 
That as they were moving cattle, they would jab the cows to get them to move in certain direction. The stubborn beasts would be jabbed with the goad to get them to move. It's been replaced modern day with the hot shot. And man, as a kid growing up on a cattle ranch, you love the hot shot. That's your job when you're working the cows. I want to be the guy with the electricity, you know, and I want to jab it in that cow's bottom and just, you know, and those cows, whoa, you know, uh, trying to get them up to the squeeze chute to get worked on. And so often, man, I just love it as a kid, you know, and bam, man, those cows, that foot would be back there towards you so quick. And, you know, little kids were a little bit zealous with the hot shot. But, you know, the Lord was doing the same thing to Saul through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through the lives of the apostles, through the, the sermon by Stephen, a sermon preached and said, you know what? All of you Jews at the Sanhedrin, in the same way that Joseph tried to tell his brothers that God was making him authority in their life and they rejected him to Pharaoh. You know, he sold him into slavery, ended up with Pharaoh. And then the second time Joseph appeared to them, they bowed the knee. And in the same way that Moses tried to help his fellow countrymen and they rejected him, so he went to the desert for 40 years and came back to let my people go. And finally you followed him. It's the same way that Jesus came the first time and you rejected him and murdered him. And he's going to come back a second time and you're going to look on him whom you pierced and you're going to mourn for him as one mourns for his only child. And Saul was there listening to this. And the goads were, soften your heart, get moving, come to me. Constant, you know, pushings and pokings by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit drawing Saul unto himself. And you know, we see on this day on the road to Damascus that the reason the goads were so violently poking at Saul was because he, were, he was inches away from salvation. Something we see is that, you know, the Lord had been calling this man to salvation. And, and the more the Holy Spirit convicted him, the more vocal and antagonistic and threatening he, he became towards God. Just like when we're moving cattle or we're pushing them through the, through the squeeze chute to get their vaccines and to get all that done. You know, the cows that we're focusing on moving are the front two or three. The ones that are inches away and that squeeze chute would open for those cattle to go in and they won't go. Uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not, I just saw what happened to that cow in front of me and I do not want that. <laughs> Boom, they're gone. And so often those that are the most vocal and stubborn against God and kicking against the goats, those are the ones that we need to press into prayer for all the more because they are so close to salvation. Think of a woman in our church who just, uh, her dad is just so antagonistic towards Jesus. Just so bitter and hard and, ah. Uh. Think of a few women that have just told me that about their dads. And, uh, man, just as I was studying this, I was like, man, are they on the brink of salvation? Should we be praying for these men and these women in our community that just seem like, man, I bet if they could kill a Christian, they would. They'd probably do it, <laughs> you know? And the Lord's saying, you know what? It's just because they're so convicted. They're so convicted and the goads are poking them. And you know what I say to you? Are you kicking against the goads today? Has the Holy Spirit been constantly convicting you of your sin and of your need for him? Have you been running away from him? Are you a prodigal? 
and he's been poking you, come back. Come back. The farther you go from me, the harder the jabs are going to... Come back. Come back. Don't kick. Why kick? Why kick against the goads? Do you realize if you went your whole life kicking against the goads, then finally you're on your deathbed and you're laying there and the little electronic system's going and it's getting slower. You know? And you're like, yeah, I won. I am not becoming a Christian. You know, at that point in your life, do you realize you lost? If you think you won in that area, you really lost. And you're going to spend an eternity in hell. But if you surrender to Jesus today and you're broken and humble before him and confess your sins and repent and turn from your sins today, you'll be saved and you win. It's the surrenderers that win. Surrender. Don't kick against the goads anymore. And so he's trembling and astonished or astounded. I mean, it means he was struck dumb by this sudden fear and terror. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And you might underline that phrase because I believe that that is the, the confession of faith out of Saul of Tarsus's lips. In a moment, the miracle of a moment at salvation, a man can become a new creation in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have been passed away and all things have been made new. That's an awesome thing. Lord, what would you have me do? Saul was turning the reins of his life over to the master. His life, that, that life that he lived of persecuting Christians, in one moment, in a few breaths, where, you know, I'm on my way to kill and persecute Christians, and now I'm going to be a preacher of Jesus. I'm violent against the church and against Christ, and now I'm going to be vocal and vibrant for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm on my way. I'm legalistic. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I keep every one of the 613 commandments. And now, in a miracle of one moment, I'm a new creation in Christ, and I'm going to proclaim salvation through faith, uh, by grace through faith. I'm going to write a book called Romans. I'm going to write a book called Galatians. And I'm going to preach grace. How does that happen? You know, the secular world doesn't know how to explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They don't understand how all of a sudden he calls Jesus Lord and goes from persecuting Jesus to loving Jesus. You know what? The world doesn't know how to explain your testimony either. They try, but they know the truth. They see your changed life. And they're blown away. And they're astounded. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Let's look over there in Acts chapter 26 again. And we'll just see that uh, you know, Paul kind of writes that there was more that Jesus said in this encounter. It says, verse 14 and And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me. When we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen And of the things which I will yet reveal to you, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you 
to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's given just a calling on his life. The miracle of the moment and the call all happened in one, you know, one instance, one encounter with Jesus as Jesus appeared uh, to Saul there on the road. And the men who journeyed with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing nothing. You know, the Lord had picked out, handpicked Saul from this group of men. You know, it was his moment, his moment to be saved. I would wonder today if there's anybody in this room that today is your moment. Today is the moment where God reaches down from heaven and touches your heart and says, why are you running from me? Why are you kicking against the goads today? These men, you know, they, they stood, they didn't hear anything, they, or they heard things but didn't see anything. And Saul arose from the ground and with his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. So we just see just this incredible conversion experience that encourage us to know that the hardest of the heart, God is able to save. And he's able to save in a moment. You know, there are a lot of friends that if we thought of them today, we thought there's no, there's no way that today this person is going to surrender their life over to Jesus and, and be baptized today. There's no way that's going to happen. I would stake money on it. But you wouldn't have wanted to stake money on it that day. You probably would have put too much down on Saul's life. God's able to save. Hebrews 7 says he's able to save to the uttermost. And if we were to put it in modern day terms, you know, it, it would probably be something like you know, Osama bin Laden. You know, and he's driving around Afghanistan in his Jeep, you know, maybe not so openly as he used to, but, you know, he's driving around and a light comes down and, you know, stalls the engine in the Jeep and he's thrown out of it. And he has this conversion experience with Jesus where he's made new. He, he's a new creation in Christ. He's not an, uh, an okay guy made better. You know, he's a horrible guy made completely new into an incredible guy before Jesus. And, you know, he has this experience that is hard for our mind to wrap around. A guy that hates Christians, a guy that hates America, a guy that, you know, his whole life is a life of terrorism. That's Saul of Tarsus. They're, they're synonymous. And, uh, and our, you know, as we finish this chapter, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but as we continue on the story of Saul today, keep in mind, it'd be like... Osama bin Laden getting saved. Okay, that's an incredible thing. So verse 10, and actually before we move on, let's flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I just, man, I've been loving reading the, uh, the testimonies of Paul and his salvation testimony. Struggled today, like how, how does this chapter fit in with what verse in Acts? But man, it's like, man, let's go there. Let's read it because it's awesome. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And it'll be verse 12. It says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Man, you look at that call that Jesus put on his life and how did, how did he count him faithful when he was a murderer? You know, the Lord knew 
But um, goes on to say, although I was a, a formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And Saul knew his background. He knew his testimony. Man, if there's one guy on the planet that's the chief of sinners, it's the guy that was murdering Christians. That's the guy that's probably making God's blood boil, you know? And, uh, and yet, man, God's grace and mercy extends so far to save this, this terrorist against Christians. He, he's the chief of sinner, he would say. Verse 16 says, However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering, underline this, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He says, I was this blaspheming, horrible terrorist that God's grace came down and touched and changed and converted and made me a new creation. And you know what? I'm just the first. I am a pattern. I am a mold because there are after me going to be Adolf Hitler's and Saddam Hussein's and Osama bin Laden's and everybody else that, you know, you could think of that's just horrible, horrible. And, and, you know, each one of us is right up there in so many ways. But my grace, it's going to be able to forgive them. And Saul is the example. So don't lose heart in praying for that relative or that mom or that dad or that coworker or that boss that just seems like they hate Christians and they'd kill you if they could. Keep praying for them. And, I, and, you know, I just love the parable of the sower and the seed and how there's hard hearts. And sometimes the seed can't penetrate. And I've just learned to be praying over those hard hearts that they would be cultivated by the Holy Spirit and be soft that when the seed of the gospel hits the heart, it would stick in the heart. And it would be able to grow and produce fruit. Pray for those people. God is able to save to the uttermost. Man, Saul's the pattern. Verse 10. <clears throat> now there was a certain disciple named uh, in Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And I just love that because uh, it, it seems as if this is a common occurrence for Ananias. You know, you remember the story of um, Eli uh, and Samuel back in, in uh, 1 Samuel and his calling. And remember the Lord kept saying, Samuel, Samuel, and, and he kept running to Eli's bedroom. Did you call me Eli? No, why? Go back to bed. Three times that happened, and finally Eli said, hey, you know what? I think the Lord's trying to get a hold of you. And, and so, so next time say, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. And, and here we see there wasn't three times needed with Ananias, but he said, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Osama bin Laden, or Saul of Tarsus, uh, he's there, and behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, one thing that's awesome about this, notice that God is working from both sides here. On one side, he's reaching out to and ministering to and confronting Saul of Tarsus. On the other end, he's preparing the way with Ananias. And don't you love that God does that on both ends? 
Man, whenever you're in a circumstance, don't just pray for your end of that circumstance or that conversation or that confrontation that's got to happen. Be praying that the Lord would go ahead of you and prepare the way and prepare that other person's heart. And I've seen so many times with big experiences that the other people who it seemed they would never agree with me in any way. You get there and they say, you know what? God already told me this. Or, you know what? I don't even believe in God, but, you know, we're going to go the way that you want to go. And, you know, God works like that. And so be prayerful about that. But, uh, you know, inquire of this guy, Saul of Tarsus. He's praying. And that's an incredible thing. That's a mark of a Christian. As Charles Spurgeon says, prayer is the autograph of God on a believer's life. Do you pray? You know, do, do you pray at home? Do you pray when you rise in the morning? Do you take time to just, you know what? I'm going to shut the TV off. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the viewpoint. I'm going to go to the reservoir. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to talk to God. And that's the autograph of God on a believer's life. Communication with him. We're the children of God. We're the bride of Christ. What kind of a marriage doesn't communicate? An unhealthy one. What kind of a father-son relationship doesn't communicate? An unhealthy one. Man, I, I ask you, do you have the autograph of God on your life? Ask the Lord to strengthen you in that area, the area of prayer. But Saul was there and he was already growing. And you know what? He, as a Pharisee, no doubt prayed a hundred times a day. But I think that this is really the first time his prayers were ever heard. Because, you know, he's been forgiven. He's not at war with God now. But, uh, man, beautiful thing to see him spending time praying. And getting a vision from the Lord. Verse 13, then Ananias answered saying, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. Lord, haven't you been watching Fox News? You know, he's killing Americans. The world trade towers have fallen. You know, we've been at war for nine years. He's shown no repentance. And he's beheading people, you know. Hey, you know what? He's praying. He's praying. Oh, that's enough for me, Lord. <laughs> you know, he's praying. He's a Christian. I've been showing him things in prayer. And, uh, and so, he, you know, though Jesus says, uh, verse 15, Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And we see that in the book of Acts. We'll see, you know, Paul, who has such a heart for Israel, God sends him out, not to Israel, but to the Gentiles. Then we'll see him before kings. We'll see him before Herod and Festus. And we'll see him before even Caesar, historically. And, and it's going that way by the end of the book of Acts. And then finally, he's got such a heart to minister to the children of Israel that they might be saved. And Romans chapter 9 begins like this. It says, I have such a heart for my fellow countrymen. The Lord bears witness with me that I would go to hell for eternity if the rest of Israel would be saved today. That's the heart of an evangelist. That's a heart that has a love for souls. Would you be willing to do that for anybody? Be accursed for all of eternity that they could be saved? Saul had that heart. Uh, he had that heart for uh, his fellow countrymen. And so the Lord did, you know, he, he had a prepared way, a prepared ministry, you know, for Saul. And I wonder what yours is. Have you sought the Lord at all for that? 
You know, it's more, I know it's more than what you're doing now. Every single one of us, God has more for us. Who's he called you to? What radical ministry? It might not look like mine. It probably won't look like mine. It probably won't look like Stuart's. It probably won't look like this or that. You have been created with your giftings and talents, and God has a plan for you. I love Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts I have towards you, says the Lord. Plans for a hope and a future. Not to harm you. Man, ask the Lord. Spend time with Jesus. What is your plan for me, Lord? And one of those things, verse 16, is that, you know, he's showing him how many things he's going to suffer for his namesake. He's going to know about Philippi. He's going to know about Damascus. He's going to know about Jerusalem. He's going to know about Rome. All of these uh, times that he's going to suffer for Jesus' namesake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. That's an incredible thing. Brother Saul. You know, Saul might have been wondering, what's what's the encounter going to be like when I first see some Christian or when some Christian first sees me, a murderer of Christians here blind? They'll probably take a knife in their hand and kill me. Oh, Lord, I trust that vision that Ananias is coming. And when he had his hand on his shoulder, Brother Saul. Man, Ananias had a brother, a family mindset that every Christian should have. We're a family. We care for each other. We love for each other. We, we sacrifice for each other. We laugh and weep with each other. Do you have the family mindset of Ananias? I remember my freshman year in high school and man, God was doing a work in my life, setting a revival in my heart. And, uh, you know, middle school years were hard for me, you know, definitely hadn't grown into my teeth yet, you know, and, or my Adam's apple and, uh, you know, long gangly, I have no body awareness, couldn't do a cartwheel to save my life. You know, I'm just kind of like, you know, like Gumby or something like that, you know, and, uh, you know, people were just cruel to me in middle school. And I remember we started going to Calvary Chapel in Corvallis and, the first time I met these two life, lifelong friends, one of my best friends, Chris Elliott and Cody Acevedo, uh, they just got out of a van. They had never met me before, and they ran to me, and they hugged me. And I was like, what is going on here? And in their own way, they said, Brother Rory, we're a family. And you know what? The Lord used those next four years of my life in a radical way, and those guys were there with me in it. You know, you know, man, are you that way? Do you have eyes to see people that, you know, they, they haven't been plugged into the family yet? Hey, we're a family. Come to my house for lunch. You know, come, man, be active and vigilant and open up your eyes to see what member of the family feels like an outcast. Man, I love that, that brother Saul. Just, oh, the comfort and the love that he felt from Ananias' touch right then. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So, you know, he, he, some incredible thing happened. I'm not sure what those scales were. You know, somehow he had been blind before, and now he could see. Um, I don't know what those were. Interesting thing, but uh, they fell off. He was finally able to see. 
And immediately he went out and he was baptized. And so when they had received food, when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And I just love that one of the first things that Saul did in, in his converted new life was seek out fellowship, spending time with the disciples, not forsaking the assembling together of the saints. And, you know, as we gather together, we're a lot like burning coals. Did you know that? You know, burning coals, as they're huddled up together and close, they, that heat and that warmth just spreads throughout the coals and creates fire. But if you take one of those coals and you set it off over by itself, it begins to get colder and colder and colder. And that's the case within the church. If you begin to forsake the fellowship with the saints, if you begin to quit reading your Bible with other believers and having the sharpening that goes on as we're all together, it's evident to everyone around you that you're getting cold. It's evident that you're, you're, you know, you're drifting. And it's a dangerous place to be as we use the analogy of we're a sheepfold because the wolf wants to pick off the one that's out there by himself. Stay within fellowship. Well, it's uncomfortable. Try being the guy that murdered Christians and going and hanging out with Christians. Be bold. You know, be obedient. You know, I always say, man, we try to reach out to you. Would you meet us halfway and reach back? You know, come to the times of fellowship. Get involved with the 242 groups. Don't isolate yourself. It's a dangerous place to be, and, and somehow Saul already knew that, showing great maturity, spending days with disciples at Damascus. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he's the son of God. Now, that's awesome. You know, he took that zeal that he had against Jesus, and he used it for Jesus. And he just went right into the synagogues. And, and don't be confused. These people that he's preaching to, these are not Christians, these are Jews that were waiting for him to get there with his letters so they could go arrest Christians and kill them or put them in prison, man or woman. And he immediately went into the synagogues and started preaching Jesus as the son of God. And you know what? Back in verse nine, we read about three days that he didn't eat or drink and he was blind. What were those three days about? I think that it was just time of revelation from the Lord. You know, as a member of the Sanhedrin and having memorized most of the Old Testament, no doubt he's just sitting there and, and all of his energies aren't going towards drinking or digesting food. They're all going towards thinking about Jesus. And he's probably thinking about all those verses that he's memorized, all those sections of scripture and how Jesus plugs in in Genesis, plugs in in Exodus, plugs in in Leviticus, plugs in in every one of the books that he has memorized and he's realizing finally Jesus is the son of God. And he probably went through some time of pondering what he had been doing to the church. And immediately he goes out and he's able to use that Old Testament that he had planted in his heart to preach Jesus as the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and they said, is this not the one who destroyed those in, uh, that called on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that we might bring them bound to the chief priest? They're that, you know, they're amazed, but not in a converting way, not in a saving type way. Uh, we'll see that in a couple of verses. And Saul, verse 22, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, 
proving that Jesus is the Christ. He astounded the Jews and he confounded the Jews. He messed up their way of thinking and he proved to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God. I didn't say he tried to prove, he proved it to them. But they chose to reject that. They kicked against the goads. We'll see that here in verse 20, 23. And after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes about this time in his life where he's hiding, uh, and he is now the hunted. He used to be the hunter, but now he's the hunted. Uh, he used to be the persecutor. Now he's the persecuted And he had to be let down through a wall in a basket. And he writes about that time that it was the most humiliating moment of his life. It was a humbling moment. And if he ever would start to get proud in his ministry or who he was, he'd remember that time when he felt so weak in that basket. And he knew that the only way that he could be saved was through Jesus. A humiliating moment for Saul. And somewhere between... Uh, Verse 25 and 26, Galatians chapter 1 says that uh, before he went to Jerusalem, he went east to Arabia for about three years. And it was during that time in Arabia that he met with Jesus and he received the message from Jesus that he would write in Romans and Galatians of of, uh, the Lord's heart to save the Gentiles. And then after those three years, he came back through Damascus in the north and then headed down to Jerusalem, which is where we see him now in verse 26. And uh, we're only going through verse 31 today, so you can breathe easy. But it says that when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul, you know, had a heart for fellowship, but because of his past, he had to fight to get into the church. So often that's the case today is people feeling like, man, I feel like I went to that church and I had to fight to get in. No one would reach out to me. No one would love on me. They looked at my past. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. I had to fight. And I've heard that before. I've heard that about our church. And uh, I said, man, if you're fighting to get in here, we haven't reached out. I am sorry. That is not our heart. We want to reach out to you. Man. Give us another try. <laughs> Give me another chance. And, and, and so, man, they needed a heart to, to have discernment with Saul here. And we see one man had that, verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road. And he'd spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas, you know, he didn't just stupid, you know, stupidly go out and bring in this ex-terrorist, but he prayed. I'm sure he had the discernment of the Lord. And the word says that perfect love casts out fear. And Barnabas, whose nickname is son of encouragement. Remember his name used to be Joseph, but now it's Barnabas, the son of encouragement uses that gift of encouragement and is able to bring uh, Saul in. So Saul Saul could share his testimony and man, he's been preaching the name of Jesus. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. I'm sorry, we skipped verse 28. 
So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So they accepted him finally. And, um, you know, a beautiful thing about this is he went in and out with them. What is in and out like here? It's a time of fellowship. It's a time of embracing. It's the time of really digging into each other's life. How's it going? How you been? You know, give me a hug. Let's pray for each other. How are you struggling? You know, Saul was a part of that. He was a part of that awesome fellowship that happens when you come in and you go out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. So again, you know, a pretty new Christian by this point, being persecuted, feeling what he had dished out on others. No doubt the irony of his fellowship with the saints is, is not lost between all of them, that the hunter and the hunted are having fellowship together now in Jerusalem. Verse 30, but when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And so, uh, you know, man, well, you can look at verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. So when was it that they finally had peace? When Saul was gone. <laughs> You know, before he was a Christian, oh my gosh, Saul of Tarsus. You know, after he's a Christian, oh my gosh, Saul of Tarsus. He didn't have a whole lot of tact when he would share Christ with people. He was zealous all the time for everything. And so they took him to uh, Caesarea, which is just on the coast there, and they shipped him up to his hometown of Tarsus. And you know how long he was in Tarsus? Twelve years in Tarsus. Twelve years of spending time with Jesus and serving in obscurity. And so often we think, well, Saul was converted on the road to Damascus and then boom, thrust into this missionary extraordinaire life. No, the Lord was still making his man in Saul for, you know, 15 years after he was saved. So don't be discouraged again by those times of small things. Don't be discouraged of those times uh, in the wilderness or where God is dealing with you because he's making his man, he's making his woman and rejoice in those times and press into Christ in those times. And uh, at the end of verse 31, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now they walked in the fear of the Lord. That was a constant thing amongst the church was hating evil, you know, being corrected by the Lord and being willing to be obedient They weren't terrorized by the Lord, not that type of fear, but it's a reverence. It's an awe that they had of the Lord. And notice the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better that I ascend and go to heaven because then I can send the Holy Spirit or the parakletos or the comforter. I'm going to send the comforter and he'll be with you always, wherever you go. And if you're hurting today, if you're grieving, if you're mourning, if you're afraid, are you aware that if you're in Christ today, there's a comforter there for you? I'm so, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where it talks about, man, in our suffering, we are comforted by the God of all comfort, that we are then able to go comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have been comforted with. That's a whole lot of comfort, am I right? Man, the Lord wants to be the comforter to you. As we sang today about Abba, Father, hear the voices of your sons and your daughters. He's a father. There's such refuge in him. There's such peace in him. But if you're rebellious against God today, if you're kicking against the goad, there's not peace. There's not comfort. There's not rest. Romans tells us you're at war with God. You're at enmity with God. 
And the outcome of consistent war with God, if you don't repent, is eternal life in hell. Man, weigh your options carefully today. You don't know how long you have on this earth. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to quit kicking against the goads and to yield the reins of your life over to Jesus Christ so that he can wash you of your sins because of what he's done on the cross. He can put a new heart in you. You can be converted today, completely changed, a new creation in Christ. There's, you know, yield to him today. I beg you. And the comforter will comfort your heart. Come on up, Stuart, and we'll close in worship. And you can put your things aside. Man, if you've come into this room today and you were like Saul of Tarsus, there's no way in the world I'm going to yield my life to Jesus. There's no way I'm going to surrender. There's no way I'm going to be vulnerable before the Lord. But today you've seen how God singles individuals out to save them. Perhaps he's brought you here today and he's singling you out and he's saying your name. Why are you resisting me? I want to bring such a peace and such a hope and such an incredible life to you. I want to bring forgiveness of all your sins so that you're not condemned anymore, so that your conscience isn't stricken. I want to surround you with a family and a support system that it has no rival on earth. Why are you kicking against me? I want to give you eternal life in paradise. Why are you kicking against me? And he would say to you today to be converted, be transformed, be born again today. You can be born again today by receiving through faith the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As he died on the cross in your place, he shed his blood instead of you shedding your blood. He took the whips on his back instead of you taking the whips on your back. And his blood was spilt so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And by faith today, in your heart, you can just receive that forgiveness. You can be washed clean today. As Jesus didn't stay on that cross, but he rose from the dead, so also will you rise to new life today. You'll have a new life in Christ. All your old things have passed away. You are a completely changed person. You also have the hope of eternal life, the resurrection from the dead. And just right now where you're at, just receive that. Hand the reins of your life over to Jesus. And if that's you where you're at right now, I just encourage you to lift up your hand. Say, Lord, that's me. I want to turn the reins of my life over to you today. 
Just respond to Jesus today as he's poking your heart right now. Don't kick back. Just respond. Then just lift up your hand and say, Rory, that's me. I, I want to be born again. I want to be converted. I want to be a new man or a new woman in Jesus. Don't resist him today. Lord, there's some of us that are like Ananias here too. And Lord, we just have ministries to people that scare us. Ministries to people that we're just, man, we know we're going to get it from them. But Lord, when you call us to open up our mouths and to love and extend a hand of compassion, Lord, may we be quick to obey. Or may we quit, be quick to be family-oriented here. Lord, for those that are in a period of waiting, Lord, to be used by you, they're in a period of just, Lord, you're making your man or your woman out of them. Lord, give them patience and give them joy in this season of obscurity, God. Lord, we worship you that you have set the pattern in Saul of Tarsus, that even the hardest of the hard, the blasphemer of the blasphemer, the pagan of the pagan can be saved. Lord, give us a heart for the community. Give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart to believe that today is the day of salvation. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.